This is the Elevate Podcast, where trial lawyers learn, share, and grow. Let's talk about how we can elevate our trial practices, law firms, and lives. And now, here are your hosts, coming to you from coast to coast, trial lawyers, Ben Gideon and Rahul Raviputi. Today's episode of the Elevate Podcast is being brought to you by Smart Advocate. Smart Advocate is award-winning case management software used to manage personal injury, medical malpractice, MDL, class action law firms all over the United States. Great program, highly recommend it. Check them out at smartadvocate.com. Today's episode is being brought to you by Expert Institute. Expert Institute is the place to go for everything involving experts to help you win your case. Check them out at expertinstitute.com. And today's episode is being brought to you by Hype Legal. Hype Legal is a one-stop shop for all of your digital marketing needs. Check them out at hypelegal.com. Welcome to the Elevate Podcast. I'm Rahul Ravipudi. And I'm Ben Gideon. So Rahul, the last time I think we spoke, you were hopping on a plane to surprise your mom for her birthday. I was. Was she surprised and did she enjoy your surprise visit? She was surprised. So she lives out in Jacksonville, Florida. I was supposed to be in trial out in Nevada and that trial got continued. And October 25th is her birthday. And so on the 24th, I booked a red-eye ticket and got there by 10 a.m. in the morning on the 25th and spent about a day and a half with her and did whatever she wanted to do. And she had the best time ever. At least that's what she told me. And so even though we were in Jacksonville, what she really wanted to do was to go to Savannah, Georgia. So we got in the car and drove a couple hours down there. And what an interesting and beautiful place. But yeah, no, thank you for asking. That was really special. I'm glad I got to do that. Well, you're a good son. Well, speaking of good fathers, you were out in Barcelona last week? I was. Yeah, my oldest is doing a semester abroad in Spain, in Barcelona. As my wife likes to say, he's living his best life. It seems to involve a lot of travel to other countries, a lot of eating, a lot of drinking, late afternoon siestas. He's, he's uh, fitting right in there to the Barcelona lifestyle. But I really enjoyed, I know Jamal, who we're about to talk to, has also spent a good amount of time in Barcelona, but it's just a it's really fantastic city. It's the kind of place where you go and you immediately start thinking, you know, we should get a little, uh, you know, apartment yep. here and telecommute. It's it's pretty, pretty nice. So with that, um, yeah. we're thrilled to invite Jamal Al-Safar to the podcast today. Jamal is somebody that I've gotten to know quite well in the last month or so. We've been working closely together. We could talk a little bit about that when we get into it. But before we do that, one of the things I learned about Jamal is that he's a a very successful trial lawyer now, but he, unlike many of the people we interview, grew up always knowing apparently that he wanted to be a trial lawyer from a very young age and sought this out, which I find pretty interesting. So while the rest of us were trying to be super cool and do not uh, me <laughs> Jamal was already planning his his career as a stellar trial lawyer so can you kind of take us back Jamal and explain how that happened for you yeah well first it started with not being super cool I think that's really important <laughs> I think you probably you probably were actually but 
you know, I come from interesting background because I'm a, I'm a, people always ask me because my name, Jamal Alsfar, they're always surprised to hear I'm a fifth generation native Texan. And they're always like, well, how, how exactly did that happen with that name? Because my dad is a born and raised in Baghdad, straight out of Baghdad, Iraq, and came over here to Texas to study engineering when he was in college after he finished studying in London. And my mom is a native Texan whose family's also in Louisiana. She was going to SMU in Dallas and my dad was going there for school. And they met at a Middle Eastern mixer dance in college. And that's how I became a fifth generation native Texan with Cajun, Louisiana, Iraqi roots. So <laughs> that's where it started, I think. And to answer your question about trial lawyer young. It probably started in like the third grade when I started get, having a long track record of arguing and getting in trouble with my teachers all the time. Like I'd get really good grades, but my mom would never look at my grades. She would look at my citizenship grades and I'd get like all A's and then all C's and D's in citizenship. And she's like, what's wrong with you? Are you cutting class? Are you? And I'm like, no, I'm just talking to my teachers and they don't like it. <laughs> so... When I was about 15, you know, I played sports. I was a basketball and, and soccer player and still play soccer. And uh, I was sort of a jock, And uh, but I was really interested in reading. And when I was 15, I read, you know, To Kill a Mockingbird and was absolutely enthralled with Atticus Finch. And, you know, I'd always remind people as he was a brave, brave trial lawyer. He went into the fire and lost, but he was a hero for doing it. And I just wanted to be Atticus Finch. So when I was 15, I was playing varsity basketball. I went out to try out for my high school mock trial team in Texas. And my high school mock trial team just happened to be one of the top mock trial teams in the high school state of Texas. And the coach was a partner at a prominent firm in Dallas. And he looked like the embodiment of Atticus Finch. He was six foot five, skinny lanky. I mean, it was it was almost kismet. And so when I tried out for the team, I had a really good tryout. But the attorney asked me at the trial, Jamal, this is a really serious team. This is we're going to practice every night. You're I see you're also playing high school basketball. You got to make a choice right now. You got to let us know. Are you going to do mock trial? Or are you going to do basketball? Because you can't do both. And right there on the spot that age, I said, this is what I want to do with my life. I will do this and I will stop playing basketball if I make the team and I made it and the rest, you know, the rest is history. So had you made the other choice, Jamal, you'd probably be the starting power forward for the, for the Spurs right now. Yeah. Right. If I had made, I mean, that's just one of those things where I kind of, it sounds like <laughs> a great, it's a great story, right? It's a true story. It's true. But I also knew how good of a basketball player I was. I knew where that would end. <laughs> and so it wasn't, at the same time, when I look back on it, I go, my God, I mean, I was only 16. I mean, what if I said the wrong thing in that moment? Because that was a kind of one of those, it's like one of those points in your life where you can see the path splitting and you got to make the right choice. And it was just a spot on, you know, on the spot question. So as they said, in Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom, I chose wisely. <laughs> I chose the right cup and that sent me on. So I fell in love with it. And I put in like Malcolm Gladwell says, I put in my 10,000 hours of trial time, probably before I even graduated college, because I did mock trial all throughout high school. I did mock trial all throughout University of Texas. And then I did it again all through law school. And so I really felt like 
making that decision and, and following my heart at the at that time was paid off in ways I couldn't imagine. Because I still, when I'm in trial, I look back at those times when I was doing, you know, student advocacy. I still look back and say, I am good at this because of what I learned when I was a kid. So that's the story. Now, looking back on it, what are some of the true nuts and bolts of developing yourself as a trial lawyer or any person developing themselves as a trial lawyer? Well, you know, I think it can happen at any age. But for me, I think I, the best lesson I learned at the very early on was um, you've got to be yourself. And the most the most valuable currency we have in front of juries, in front of judges in a courtroom is our authenticity, that people really trust us and believe that when we're advocating and we're talking to them, that we are who we really are. When I was young, it's first learning, I knew I was imitating what I thought in my head. And then down in Texas, the, I, I would do draws. I would do the too many y'alls, you know, all that kind of stuff. And people I'm seeing, they're so great and they have these great, you know, real Southern draws and they, but I wasn't as good as I could have been when I was doing that. And so when I'm asked that question, I'm asked that question a lot, you know, you think I'm going to answer with, with a lot of technical aspects, but no, I said the best trial lawyers become the best, I think, when they really embrace who they are and that is how they speak how they relate to people, and it's who, who they are, not who they think someone else is. So doing all that stuff when I was young got it out of my system, right? Got me comfortable with who I was so that when I actually became a trial lawyer, I was just being me, you know? And then you try to improve on those things, whether it's slowing down a little bit and, you know, but me, like, this is me and this is how I relate to people. And that's what I'm going to do when I'm in a courtroom. And been very successful. And when I became a teacher in trial, I obviously told them the same thing because I started seeing my students trying to imitate me, <laughs> you know, trying to use my phrases, the way I talked, the way I held my glasses, whatever. I mean, I could see it happening. And so being who you are and, and really just learning to be comfortable with yourself and not, not thinking that you aren't able to get the message across is really one of the most important skills. I'm really interested in what translates from the early, my daughter's doing mock trial now, and I've been involved not just on the periphery, but I've been asked to judge some high school mock trials. So I've observed students in action. And there's one thing that always jumps out at me is that the, the students seem so earnest and so unjaded and so unencumbered in a sense by what we end up learning and the way we, the analytical framework that we learn through law school and how we learn to talk as lawyers and the high school students, in some ways it's refreshing because they're just still normal people, which I think is quite valuable. But then I also, part of me wonders how much of that translates into kind of the successful skill set you need later as a trial lawyer. Of course, most kids who go through mock trial don't go on to become successful trial lawyers as you have. So what elements of it do you think do translate and which elements don't really, and that you have, that there's something that you learn later that's important or equally valuable to the early life lessons? I don't like coaching law students. Like when I was doing trial ad for law schools, I didn't like it that much because, uh, I had done a lot of coaching of younger people, college, like I, I, I taught at my university, the college mock trial team for a long time. Now my partner does and associates, so it's really great. The reason why I much prefer, 
high school or co- really college students is because they haven't gone through the terrible lessons that are law school on how not to talk, how to create all of these barriers. Law school teaches all of these barriers to communicating to a normal human being, right? All the legalese, all of the analytical thinking that really prevents you from just connecting as a human being to another human being. Law school is really bad at creating trial lawyers. I know that sounds ridiculous, but I really believe that unless it's a trial lawyer specialized program you're in. And I think it's really good at creating, you know, corporate lawyers and business lawyers and contract lawyers. I think it's terrible at creating trial lawyers. So like, for example, I mean, when I was younger and, and still coaching mock trial and doing trial advocacy coaching, if I had a, like a debater, I would just spend a lot of time sort of taking the debate stuff out of them, right? The fast talking, the the sort of, and I spent a lot of time just really trying to teach the kids and to young advocates just to find their voice and to take the newscastery thing out of them, take the debater thing out of them, take out all of those, those hurdles that we somehow learn, especially as lawyers in law school, that we've in front of us between point A and point B being the jury. And we forget that people in the jury box and people in the courtroom, even judges, they just want to be persuaded and they just want to be talked to normally. So I think that's the biggest thing that I try to take away if I'm dealing with a law student or a young attorney who's who's wants to be a trial lawyer. And so if you can get at them really young and really teach them to be conversational, teach them just to talk, find a way to get, take that complexity and translate it into talking, that's, that's the number one thing. And then you know, number two, I think one of the things we learn that you can only learn through doing trials is being a lot more efficient, right? I mean, I think that one of the things that my federal trial court practice has really taught me to translate into both federal and state is we can do these things a lot more faster, a lot faster and a lot more efficient. Um, and that's one one of the great things we did in the Sutherland Springs church shooting trial is because we had so many hundreds of witnesses, I really did priority number one to put time limits on everyone to make sure that hit those limits and it ended up making everything so much better, so much more persuasive. What type of time limits? In federal court, often it's not unusual for a judge just to say you have, for example, 10 hours of real time, you know, 10 hours to do your openings, your closings, your directs, your crosses. That's you know, that's not an unusual stuff. Like I've, I've had birth injury trials where federal judges instituted that kind of limit. Our trials were in this mass shooting case were month and a half, two month long trials and they were bifurcated, but they could have easily been six month trials if the judge didn't follow my what, what were my recommendations for efficient trials. So time limits on individual witnesses. Right. I'm going to I'm going to put X amount of time, 45 minutes for direct examination and I want the defendant to have the same time limits, equal time limits, right? You don't get more, you don't get less than I do, and that's a fair game. Maybe an hour, but no more on, a, on an expert witness, directs and crosses. Once you, once you do those kinds of things, and once you, as a plaintiff's lawyer, right, we're always worried about how many times do we have to repetitively say our, our case to make sure the jury gets it. But once you accept and once you just sort of really get comfortable with an efficient way of doing it, you, you really learn what's important to say and what's not important to say. And, and in my view, listen, I'm a kid. 
it helps me to have boundaries. <laughs> you know, it helps me when I have when the court gives me boundaries. And so I've learned to start asking for them. And I can tell you this, judges are always surprised when the plaintiff's lawyer is asking for it. And they're kind of like, well, shoot, if the guy who has to get the verdict is asking for it. What's your excuse, defendant, for not accepting it? And usually catches them off guard. Juries, judges appreciate it. That, that I am trying to be more efficient with their time, that I'm valuing their time. So that's uh, one of the things that I've really learned and embraced in my practice. Do you, do you ask for time limits now in every trial? The last few I have, yeah. I, you I'm know, just I'm curious prob- because, I mean, you could be efficient and then allow the defense to be long-winded and inefficient. And does, would yeah. that be beneficial in creating that contrast of styles or would you Do you think you're still better off if both sides are living with limits? I think a a judge is if you're it's kind of depends on the court and the court usually wants to do wants to get the case moving. And so they're going to impose it on both. But when that doesn't happen, what happens after 45 minutes? I mean, you get, you know, especially modern jurors, they're gone. So if you do yours in that time limit of time window of when they're paying attention and then the defendant is going on and on. You're just sitting back looking at the jury. Jury's looking at you. Jury's like, I like that guy. He's always efficient with my time. And it's, it's the, the time waster over here is trying to drag this on. They don't look as organized. They don't look as put together. So even if the judge doesn't give them time limits, I think it benefits us when they don't follow them. And when they, you know, and I start, you start seeing that they sort of naturally realize halfway through, hey, I, <laughs> I need to do what they're doing because this jury is starting to get pissed off at me. Do you have an example of, you know, with efficiency, the whole goal is to be quick and effective. Do you have an example of where a judge has set up a time limit where you had to move quick, but so fast that you maybe feel like you lost some effectiveness? Well, let me let me give you a good example I had. I had a, um, God, this was about 12, 13 years, maybe even more ago. I had a, it was a severe brain injury trial. and. It was, a, it was a medical malpractice case where they failed to diagnose an acoustic neuroma, which is a small tumor that usually forms in, in the brain. And uh, anyway, the, the mother ended up having a, a severe stroke. So the judge had put pretty strict time limits on us and that we accepted. And, and my partner at the time, no longer my partner, but my, my, that I was doing the case with, had a very hard time doing that, had a very difficult time and was, was taking too long during the case in chief. And, you know, I was passing notes left and right, like, here's our overall time limit, you know, notes like you better would have stopped right now kind of notes. Right. But he just had a hard, he just had a hard time doing it. It wasn't anybody at the firm now. It's, uh, it was another firm and we were so doing it joint. So what that, that put me in the position is I was putting on the family towards the end. And, and this was really stirring testimony about, you know, their mother and it was a really close family. But so I was really handicapped and hamstrung with a very tight limit. Now, this is not a story, though, where I think it backfired. So what I did, I said, well, I only have a certain amount of time. The judge like, Mr. Alspar, I'm not changing. You know, this is the time limit. And I had to put on like the five kids. And I only had, you know, I think maybe 15 minutes at most for each one, maybe 10 minutes for each one. But it really forced me to learn a good lesson that I had implemented in every trial since. And, and so I sat down with the family and I said, OK, here, here's what we got to do. Each one of you children, we're going to build a storyline. We're going to build a storyboard about your mother. But just I only got a few minutes with each one of you. Each one of you give me one 
or two stories, just one or two. That's it. That's just such a great story, whether it's a Christmas story, whether it's a fishing story, it doesn't matter. Just give me one or two. We'll get you all five. By the time you're all done, there will be 10, 11 powerful stories that each one of you told about. And then it will seem like this huge, you know, really detailed tape tapestry of what your mom was like. And so we did that. I introduced them very quickly and I just said, you know what? I don't want to, I know this is very hard. This is extremely difficult. Let's just do this. Just tell me about a story or two about your mother that you think will, will help understand what you miss about what happened to her. And so each kid goes up, it, this thing ended up being so much better, so much better. And I didn't come up with it. It was, it was our own sort of inability to follow the timeline that put us in the situation Ever since that trial, I'm like, well, I'm going to do a version of this every single time because, you know, people in tears, the court was moved and it was like, this is the way to do it. Right. Just just get to the point, get stories out there, make them the focus with really just touching stories while pictures being flashed up when they were doing it done. So after that, I just uh, I just my shortcut method for effectively putting on family or friends talk about severe damages has always been I'll sit down with them I'll spend a lot of time with them you know prior to trial and I'll make them just write down for me write me 10 stories or so um, we'll find the pictures to go with them and this whole examination will just be remember that time you told me about x can you tell the jury about that you know picture goes up and they just start and they're just in and then they're just talking to the jury and they're just talking about a great story like you're around a fireplace you know in your living room and you know, and we'll just do that the whole exam and then we'll thank you. That's all I needed. And then, you know, of course, I make sure the story is tied to the elements of the jury charge, right? Because you need to establish those elements. But really has made the, those examinations for me. I haven't changed. I did it in the Sutherland Springs mass shooting trial as well. And it was just it makes your clients so much better as a witness because it's their story. And it also is a story that they is so close to their heart that when they tell it, they're a wonderful narrator. They're just a wonderful storyteller. And that's really all we're trying to do. That's really great advice. So, Jabal, you have a, you developed a sort of a niche expertise in cases involving suing the federal government, among other things. How did you get into that field? And can you kind of give the listeners who maybe don't have much experience in that area kind of the short primer on what goes into those types of cases? So it was great planning by accident. <laughs> so nobody starts out going, you know what? I want to sue the federal government in the United States of America in federal court. And oh, by the way, I only want a bench trial. <laughs> nobody chooses to do that on our side. So just by way of background, our firm, it's our 52nd year practicing personal injury law in Texas. And so we practice catastrophic cases and all kinds of injury and death cases around the state of Texas and state courts federal jury trials, et cetera. And that had always been the way until about 20 years ago. This military family, their children, two cases at the same time came through uh, referring attorneys to us that were birth injury, catastrophic birth injury cases, quadriplegia, HIE, hypoxic injury, just terrible cerebral palsy. And they both were out of an army hospital in Texas. And the children were born at the army hospital. And then and the OBs were at the Army Hospital, and it was terrible negligence. So the lawyers that referred him to us said, oh, by the way, this is a Federal Tort Claims Act. Everyone in our office said, what is the Federal Tort Claims Act? <laughs> you know, what is that? 
you can sue the federal government for medical negligence. I didn't know that. So 20 plus years ago, we learned the weird thing that is the FTCA, the Federal Tort Claims Act. We learned all the tricks and traps of that and, and tried those two cases in federal court with with conservative federal Republican judges. And we ended up getting two of the largest FTCA verdicts for individual cases in the history of that federal statute. And after that, we learned a very important lesson. We learned that, A, I don't, federal judges, at least down in Texas, we're not seeing a lot of good trial lawyering. A lot of their cases are criminal and immigration type cases take up most of their docket or patent trials. And I know y'all probably know this, that it's not always a lot of great trial advocacy in a patent trial. And so the judges really enjoyed seeing what we do, you know, the care we put into an actual trial. And then I learned that, you know, we've all been taught this bogeyman in law school that, you know, federal judges are the worst to have to decide a personal injury case and verdicts. And we found the opposite. We found that if your case is strong, they are not as subject to all this sort of BS tort reform stuff that has been, they all know that the tort reform stuff is all made up, that it's not really true, that, you know, there isn't some kind of crisis. So they're like, well, if you meet your elements and you prove your case, I don't have any bias against it. I'm going to give you what the law requires. And so, and then the final thing we learned was, and this is something I, you know, did and really pushed. I said, you know, we can do this all around the country, these federal tort claim cases, because the federal rules of procedure and evidence apply. They're this uniform everywhere. We just need to find good local counsel to, to work with us. And so we then, I, I expanded, we expanded it, our national practice into the FTCA space. So we've tried FTCA cases of all kinds all over the country. I've tried several myself, and I, I agree with you. I feel like judges really do want to be fair and they're not as in the med mal world you deal with a lot of uh, obfuscation and attempts to confuse the matter and distract from the from the defense in every case and federal judges really don't appreciate that and they're not going to be swayed by that so they can be a good audience for you and and particularly if you're very well prepared and know the rules and try a clean case they really appreciate it and i agree they don't see that in their courtrooms very often so it's a nice experience for them and they they like having us in their courtrooms what about that jury of one that you mm -hmm. don't get to choose at all has has it ever not played out that way i mean i love your perspective on it but Sometimes <laughs> do, does that judge kind of make it outcome driven? There have been occasions where that's happened. Listen, I've lost some um, and there have been. But just like with a jury, you get some jurors that there's done nothing you can do. You know, despite all the picking that you do and the time you do to pick it, you just you just don't have a good jury. But that's not frequent, my perspective. And, and, and what I always tell people in this space when we're talking about trying these bench trials in federal court, and I'm often a, I'm often an interloper, Ben, as you're learning. I'm an interloper. I'm coming in from Texas and they've, you know, there's a lot of you would think maybe a little bias. So but what I've learned is what Ben just commented on is we're super prepared. We're super we respect the trial system in every form. So when I step into a courtroom, I will never be unprepared. I will never I will never be anything other than because I respect the constitutional system and, and trial system so much. You know, I really care about it and it shows. And 
and judges love that. And what I've found is, and what I tell people is, look, listen, when do you, in any other jury trial, when do you get to spend as much time learning and developing a relationship with a juror compared to a judge? He's going to have your case for, you know, two years. If you go to trial, two years or more, he's going to hear you in, in their court on motions. He's going to hear you on hearings, et cetera. I mean, in the Sutherland Springs mass shooting trial is a great example. This judge was Republican, conservative. He's a brilliant Harvard-educated judge. He's a brilliant judge. And so I was happy. You know, I had a Texas Republican judge in a mass shooting case. You would think, you're nuts. <laughs> you're nuts. But I knew he would really appreciate our advocacy. So we had dozens of hearings with him. We had dozens of interactions with him, you know, even over, you know, just scheduling. And, com- and, and, and so that's an opportunity for us to educate my juror, uh, not only about the case, but about me. And it, by the time we got to trial, in my opinion, the juror, the judge was already like, whenever I need something, whenever I need a piece of evidence, when I need, I need someone to trust to get me what I need to hear and to do it right, I can look at you do it. That's a great advantage to have. And we don't get that kind of advantage in a jury trial. They, they, they're sitting there the morning we get there, and then you have a few minutes and you're done, right? And so the other side of the coin on a Federal Tort Claims Act case is that you actually get to spend a lot of time with your juror, and that can be good or bad depending on the lawyers. So hopefully, I've always viewed it as I'm never going to waste their time. I'm not going to file frivolous motions just to get back at my other counsel. I'm always going to be the guy trying to find a solution. And the court is going to know that so that when I stand up an opening statement at the actual trial, he's already been primed that that what I'm going to hear from him is is good, prepared, but also reliable. And that's boy, you know, you give me that with any juror, you know, that's it, right? That's the whole ballgame. We'd like to thank the sponsors of the Elevate podcast, Steno, national court reporting service that allows trial lawyers to defer the costs of court reporting until the end of the case. Take a look, steno.com. And by Law Pods. Law Pods is the podcast production company that we use to produce the show that produces uh, podcasts for lawyers all over the country. They have an expertise in podcasting and the law. Check them out at lawpods.com. Yeah, see, Ben, this is exactly why I love to do this podcast with you. I mean, getting to my eyes opened to a whole new perspective like this from Jamal, this is so cool. I You're going to be waving all your juries now, Rahul? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> well, I'm not saying that. I love, jury, I love juries. I love juries because, you know, we get, to, we're, we're, we get to do both. But it really does. Listen, let me just, I want to be absolutely honest here. It scared the hell out of me. Because, you know, a plaintiff's trial lawyer, we are brought up on the notion from birth that federal court should be avoided and that a federal judge-only trial is going to be the, your worst nightmare. And I have not found that to be true, but I felt that the first couple of times I did it. And then, of course, the reality disproved that notion. So it's just sort of one of those things that sometimes you just have to go through. And then what's, what's great about it for me is I've turned those lessons, I've turned the, the federal court lessons into how I practice in the jury's trial cases we have in terms of efficiency, in terms of time wasting and just getting to the point, right? Just say, hey, I'll whatever you need me to do, I'll do as long as I get to my trial date. And when I get in that trial, 
I am not going to waste time. I'm going to be efficient. And, and it catches the defense off guard every time because they're not ready and they never believe us. They never believe us when we say, yeah, we'll be done in four days. We'll be done in five days. We'll be, you know, we, we don't need, you know, three weeks. And, you know, we tell them that honestly. And then they're like, yeah, whatever. You're going to take a long time. And then we do it and they're stuck. Your Honor, it's two o'clock or it's 12 o'clock. Our witness isn't available for another day. We didn't think they'd get done this quick. And the judge is like in front of a jury. Well, he told you he would. <laughs> he told you that, you know, a week ago. And he did. Well, I don't understand what's going on. And, you know, they're, it's just not a good look in front of the jury or the judge. So that's what I recommend. So you have not by choice, but by, uh, I guess, the coincidence of where you're located and the circumstances in our country today become one of the lawyers in our country who is most knowledgeable and experienced in representing victims of in mass shooting cases. And one of the reasons I wanted to have you on, as you know, is we just had a mass shooting in Lewiston, Maine, and I'm sitting here in my desk in Auburn, Maine, looking out across the river where you were sitting just a few days ago, Jamal, and I'm looking across at the city of Lewiston. And this is something that's really shaken our state and hit us very hard because we're a small, you know, out of the way rural state where stuff like this just doesn't happen and people don't think that it can happen, but it now it has happened. I do want to get into your story about Sutherland Springs before we talk about that specific case. I'm just curious about your global observations now, having gone through that case involving a mass shooting in Texas and then becoming involved in other similar cases like in Uvalde and now up here in Lewiston, Maine and probably elsewhere. What is going on in our country and what, if anything, can we as trial lawyers do about it? This is the essential question. And, you know, Ben, you probably privately heard me talk about this ad nauseum. So I apologize if I'm repeating myself. But the question is, what is going on? Is To me, it's very simple. We have a complete failure of leadership and we know from where it's coming and a failure of leadership is often, in my opinion, closely tied or inextricably linked to a lack of courage. And so what I mean by that is we know how to fix this mass shooting problem in America. It does not happen anywhere else in the world in any other democratic first world country at all. And when a mass shooting happens every once in a long time in another country, they fix it and it doesn't happen again. We know what to do. But in this country, there is a complete lack of courage because of the moneyed interest and the powerful gun interests that are involved that make it make these our leaders absolutely cower in fear of not being able to win an election. That's it. I mean, that's what it comes down to is do we have, in my view, the simple courage to stand up to powerful interests? And the only consequence is you might lose an election. Well, I've lost trials. I mean, that happens. And so we know how to fix this. We know how to fix this. And there's a variety of ways to fix it. And whether it's, you know, safer laws for certain guns or whether it's other laws that regulate it better, like we regulate cars, we could fix this in a month if we had the courage and leadership. But we don't. We've sat back for 20 plus years and we've watched America become the center of mass violence like we're a third world drug cartel run country. 
I mean, that's what it's like. If you, you've been to, when, when I, my relatives overseas in Europe, they're afraid to come here. <laughs> they're like, well, it's a bowling alley. It's a bar. It's a church. It's a movie theater. It's a school. It's a high school, elementary, college campus. It's a country music concert. And the answer always is, or the question's always is, why aren't y'all fixing? I don't understand why you're not fixing this. We fixed it. I don't understand why you're not fixing this. So I've always found this to be true. It's why I became a version of the Atticus Finch I so admired as a kid, is that we, as trial lawyers, are always willing to step into the breach when there's a failure of courage and a failure of leadership, because we are not, we are, it's almost self-selection. I believe we are trial lawyers because we want that responsibility. We want to make our community safer. We want to make a difference. When we die, we want to look back and say we made a difference. And, you know, I think it's in our DNA to go up against corrupt power. It's just in our DNA. And in the mass shooting space, you know, I'm often asked the question, why in the hell? Did, how did you become what you just said? How did you become one of the leading attorneys in the mass shooting space, which is a moniker I hope to do away with soon because I want mass shootings cases to make to be history, not headlines. That's what I that's my goal. Um, so when the Sutherland Springs Church mass shooting, which was still Texas's worst mass shooting, which, by the way, is saying something because we have a mass shooting almost every month here. We have a Lewiston, Maine every year in Texas. And uh, Sutherland Springs Church was a lot like your Lewiston community. It's a rural Texas small town community. Everybody knows each other. And on a Sunday morning service, a former Air Force, deranged Air Force member, came in with an AR-15, the mass violence weapon of choice, and uh, massacred 26 people and, and ser seriously injured 22 others. And I was in the car with my wife, who's also my law partner. We have a whole new podcast on that one. Um, got to have and, her on. <laughs> yeah, she's a lot better, by the way. Great trial lawyer, too. She was with me. We heard it on the radio, and we we're like, that's just, that's not far from Austin, and um, we just got mad, Ben. I mean, we just got upset and we just got we just said that was our enough moment. You know, we had been through a lot of mass shootings in Texas. We weren't far removed from one in Dallas uh, where a bunch of police officers were murdered in a mass shooting. And we had just had enough. And we said, you know what? Uh, I think here the federal government is at fault. I think that the Air Force knew this guy was dangerous. They knew that he wanted to commit mass violence and they didn't report him to the background check system. They let him loose after protecting themselves to the public with no warning. And he's able to buy as many guns as he wanted to unchecked. And that immediately my wife said, that's an FTCA case. No one else thought it was, but we did. And that's when we started down this road. And we're like, we're gonna do something. We're, you know, at the time, there'd never been a trial verdict against the federal government for a mass shooting or mass violence. And so we didn't have a lot to go on, but we really, my wife figured out the theory and said, I just did what she said. She's like, okay, go, go get it done. So that's how we got into it. We just got mad and our trial lawyer genes kicked in and we wanted to make a difference and start changing things, which we were able to do. And then I said, okay, what's next? Where else can we make this difference? And so that's how I started getting involved like with you, Ben, in Maine, trying to go to wherever I was welcome to try to help and make a difference. And, and if our people and our governments in power are not going to fix this problem, then I think the trial lawyer oath requires us to fix it. And one thing visited Maine mm -hmm. was last Monday. 
Yes. A week ago today. Yes. And we yes. had a forum where people came out, were able to ask questions and share information and just kind of uh, start a dialogue around whether there's anything that could be done for the victims here in Maine. But one of the things in your uh, presentation there to the group, you pointed out were some of the similarities between what you found when you got the information and uncovered the real story of what happened in the Sutherland Springs case and then what's been at least to date publicly reported about the circumstances leading up to the mass shooting in Maine. Could you talk about that a little bit? Yes. As more and more information has come out about what happened in Lewiston, my jaw sort of keeps dropping about how this echoes almost exactly like the Sutherland Springs church shooting case. And so here, here's what I mean by that. In the Sutherland Springs uh, massacre, the shooter was involuntarily hospitalized before the shooting by the military. In Maine, the Lewiston shooter was involuntarily hospitalized by the Army months before the shooting. In the Sutherland Springs, Texas case, the law enforcement and military law enforcement failed to report all of the, the clear signs and danger of the shooter to the FBI background check system, which if people don't know, if you've been institutionalized in a mental hospital involuntarily, or if you've been convicted of a felony or, or a domestic violence misdemeanor, anything like that, you know, if you're dangerous and the law enforcement knows about it, you're required to report them to the background check system so that they can't buy guns, but also if they get into an interaction with a law enforcement, the law enforcement knows, okay, we've got a fe- we've got someone here who shouldn't be in possession of guns. Well, that happened in Sutherland Springs. In Lewiston, the law enforcement, local and army failed to report him in any way, shape or form to the FBI background check system. In Sutherland Springs, the shooter specifically threatened to commit a mass shooting at towards the military. In Lewiston, the shooter specifically threatened a mass shooting as well before he did it. In Sutherland Springs, the Air Force, after learning of how dangerous the shooter was, protected itself, but not the public. What I mean by that, the Air Force shut down their bases. They put out all all points bulletin alerts throughout all the bases in the country that he was armed, dangerous, and a severe threat to commit a mass shooting. That was documented in the Air Force logs, security logs, well before the shooting. Um, And guess what? It worked because he tried to come back to the basis to commit a mass shooting three separate times before the mass shooting in the church. And he didn't accomplish it because they protected themselves. In the Lewiston case, the shooter, the army, after after they learned about his intent to mass violence, after they put him into a mental institution, after the law enforcement told him about how dangerous he was, the army protected itself. They had guards come, state troopers come to protect their base and protect the people inside their base from him, but not the public. Um, and then the final piece that shocked me that was so similar was that the because of all these failures, the shooter in Sutherland Springs was able to walk into a gun store, purchase a ton of a- ARs, guns, all the ammo his heart desired. No check fully clear in Lewiston days before the shooting and in the months before free and clear. He's able to go in and get as much guns and as many ammunition, as many parts he wanted to attach to that gun free and clear. And those are all facts. <laughs> Those are all facts that we know that just now that we know. And you can see the alignment between 
this case and the Sutherland Springs case is, is eerily similar. And all of this just goes to say that it's just another example of what we said earlier. These things are preventable. These things are preventable. If people, especially people in the military and the law enforcement community, just do their the one job they're required to do, and that is protect the public. Yeah, and what was so sad in Maine is that ordinary folks, including the shooter's own son and believe it was his ex-wife, were reporting to authorities their concerns, which ha- can't be easy to do that for your own dad and, and relative and also with the concern that maybe he'll learn about it and exact re- retribution. So you're taking a risk in doing that, but they reported it. They expressed their concerns and yet nothing was nothing happened when the authorities learned about it. So back to Sutherland Springs, the result you got, the government, the U.S. government did not, once your wife figured out the theory and told you what it was and you filed your lawsuit, they didn't just roll over and say, you're absolutely right, Jamal. Here's financial compensation to compensate these families. We're going to admit fault. We're going to change our procedures and policies to make sure this didn't happen. You had to drag them kicking and screaming through a long litigation battle, acquired documents and information that they were trying to withhold and hide from you, and then ultimately try your case in two lengthy trials before the federal judge in order to accomplish that result. So can you just talk about that a little bit and was the final result and what kind of change did that create? Okay, I'll work a little bit backwards. So we had to have two trials bifurcated because of the breadth and size of the evidence. So our first liability trial was about a month and a half long during two COVID spells, by the way. So I can talk about how we had to adjust for that. We had the first federal trial. It was the first hybrid Zoom, in-person Zoom trial in the country, I believe. So that was the liability trial for a month and a half. We won that. And then we had the damages trial, which is about a month and a half as well. And uh, we obtained a $230 million verdict against the federal government. And so that's the, the result. It took five years of litigation to get there. And if we go back to the beginning, it took several rounds of motions to dismiss, motions for summary judgment. I actually filed a proactive motion for summary judgment that I partially won to put them on the back foot. And just to give you a little background, the Department of Justice defended this case. So the Washington, D.C. Department of Justice, the heads there defended this case in Texas until the damages trial. When they lost the liability trial, they punted to the local San Antonio office, literally got an email, a text from the U.S. attorney in DOJ in Washington. The day I won the live, I got the verdict saying, it was great working with you, did an amazing job, I'm out. That's what, that's the text I got. The local, the locals are going to handle this damages part. So I thought that was interesting. But so the DOJ defended this case. And the reason why I say that is because when you have a substantial case against the federal government like this, they're going to bring all the king's horses and all the king's men from D.C. to defend it. And I think the Department of Justice is full of wonderful people. I really do. People who really care That's why these are smart lawyers who, instead of going into private practice where they can make a lot of money, they're serving their government. But when they were involved in these types of cases, I think their priority was to protect and keep from the public the evidence that showed how bad, how bad our government has been handling this problem 
of violent people getting access to weapons of, of mass violence. And so one of the first and most difficult battles was for the first few months after you know, discovery started. And as you all know, under Rule 26, they're mandatory disclosures. You're not allowed. You don't even have to wait. You're, you're required to start turning over relevant evidence. They wouldn't even turn over witness lists with persons of relevant knowledge, much less documents. So I had to go. I filed a motions for sanctions against the DOJ and they weren't used to that. And their willingness to withhold so much information that was relevant, including witnesses, uh, was so egregious that when I walked into the courthouse for the motion, I didn't ask for sanctions, by the way. I decided I just wanted the documents and the witness list to start running with the case. The judge comes in and says, Mr. Alsper, I don't need to hear from you. I want to talk to the DOJ attorneys real quick. And DOJ attorney stands up. He's like, he stops him. He goes, I'm really mad. I don't know why you haven't turned over mandatory witness lists and mandatory documents to Mr. Alsper, including policies and procedures and witness statements. And he said, I'm so mad. I need to take a break. I'm going to take 10 minutes. I'm going to go back to my chambers. And when I come back, I want you to have been on the phone with Washington, D.C., and I want an answer for when you're going to give him those documents and those witness lists. Comes back in 10 minutes later, DOJ lawyer stands up and says, well, Your Honor, I talked to somebody. I talked to my bosses at D.C. And, you know, the thing is, he goes, the thing is, and he just said, yes or no, or are you going to turn him over right now? He goes, no, okay, I'm sanctioning you. And he said, Mr. Alsford, how many lawyers back there do you have? And, you know, it was like 20 lawyers from all the top plaintiff's lawyers were involved in this case. I was lead counsel, so I handled all the litigation and trial. But I said, yeah, there's like 22 of us. And he's like, I want you to all give me your hourly rates, how much you worked on this, all your hourly You know, it was just great, right? And he's sanctioned them. And, you know, that set the tone, right? That set the tone for the rest. But my point in all of that was that's that's what it was like for the entire litigation. The Department of Justice did not want to reveal what they knew. And I will the, the short version is this. We learned through forcing them, and this is public safety stuff, we learned through forcing them through discovery, through document production, that the federal government, meaning the, the every military branch, every Army, Navy, Air Force, for over 30 years, they have been failing to report both convicted felons and just dangerous folks who had who expressed mass violent intent. For over 30 years, they have been failing to report these people to the FBI background check system. When I said they were failing, they, in the Army in particular, was failing at a 50% clip, meaning one out of every two that were required to be reported weren't. That number over 30 years is like 100,000 plus. So we're talking about the most dangerous people being unleashed on the public to get access to weapons without any kind of check or any kind of alarm system going off. And so, because of the trial, because of the $230 million verdict, part of the process that happened was, you know, we were able to fix the Air Force. At least. They, they adopted everything our experts said in terms of how they needed to fix their database, how do they needed to fix their reporting system from top to bottom throughout the entire country in the Air Force. And we got more felons and dangerous folks put into the background check system. We required that. And we, their entire policy and procedure system was changed. And that was probably the most important thing to the families is that we got hundreds of thousands of criminal records back into the system that were never reported and tens of thousands of felons back into the system and dangerous people back into the system that weren't reported. 
Now, that brings me to Maine. So when I heard what happened and I heard it was the Army, I couldn't believe it. I'm like, this is Sutherland Springs Air Force all over again. Why wasn't this guy flagged? He would have been easily flagged and it would have been easy to get his weapons because he was pretty much in their control and they were lo- – even local law enforcement were like, yeah, we need to get his weapons. And i upset, obviously. <laughs> I'm upset that this is still happening with the military because they know better now. We made the Air Force fix their problem and I'm not really – sure why the army didn't as well. Well, Jamal, we really appreciate you coming on and talking with us today. And I personally am so thankful that you've agreed to come and help us here in Maine. Your your knowledge and expertise and skill in this area is going to be invaluable to the folks here who are looking for help. And hopefully this case will also lead to the kind of changes that your last case did and the army will be forced to change its practices in line with what you forced the Air Force to do from the other case. and Well, thank you. And more globally, I do hope that you can, you can, there'll come a point where folks around our country no longer need your services and that you don't have to continue practicing in the space of, of mass shootings. Sadly, though, I don't see that happening anytime soon with our current political leadership. Thank you for everything you've done and you're going to continue to do and for talking to us today. You're welcome. And I just want to thank both of you. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. And I just want to say I, I really appreciate being invited on to this show. I respect both of you so much, I what your firms do. And I appreciate, Ben, you inviting me into Maine, into this wonderful community, because I think what animates all of us is at the end of the day, if we can look back and say we made positive change and we made our community safer, then, you know, we've done our job. And I just don't want any more communities to go through what Lewiston is going through right now, what Sutherland Springs is going through, what so many communities in Texas have gone through and around the country, especially because I think we can do some good and we can stop it. And so if it's going to be us, then let it be us. That's fine. You know, I always tell people we can do this the easy way or we can do this the hard way. The easy way is for leadership to get some guts and do the right thing. Well, that's not happening. So we'll do this the hard way. Thanks again. Thank you, Jamal. For more information about today's guests and the topics discussed on the show, please visit our website at www.elevate.net. That's E-L-A-W-B-A-T-E.net, where you'll find guest profiles and show notes, and you can continue the conversation by joining our Facebook group. And if you enjoyed today's show, we hope that you'll subscribe and consider giving us a five-star review. So for now, keep on working to elevate your trial law practice, and we'll see you back again soon.